Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel like delayed gratification because we have tried to get this freaking podcast going for <laughs> three weeks or something now, and our platforms are failing us. Yeah, yeah, with some technical difficulties, I was sounding like a robot. Uh, <laughs> so I don't much. know. I don't know. Yeah, I'll blame myself. It was my. So I feel fun. like today. I feel like an audiobook with auto tune. Mm. It's just better good. than it's the good kind of it's a good kind of robot sound. Would you be able to yeah. listen to an entire audiobook that's auto tuned? No, no, <laughs> I don't think so. It have to be, it have to be pretty short or like a rhyming kind of like I don't know Dr. Seuss thing or something. But nice. but no, not like a not like a, a giant novel. That would be awful. <laughs> that would be awful. Although somebody should still do it. Yeah, I still want to hear it and, <laughs> and make a. I'll make a judgment later, but initially it doesn't sound that great. But yeah, we're back. Uh, it's been a little bit. Got some reading done, but uh, not enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trying to get back into the swing of things. It's just been hard, you know. Mm-hmm. We're kind of like turning the turning the corner on all this stuff. Uh, starting to be able to do more things just cool. right yeah have you vaccinated and all what that have you, what have you done if anything i mean just got, i've gone to a restaurant which was crazy yeah i've gone i've me, gone to a few I restaurants i actually yeah. went to uh <laughs> like i went to like a half capacity dodger game like baseball oh yeah yeah. at dodger stadium it's pretty awesome cool did they win they did win against the Mariners and they like, it was a really good game. They turned it around like in the eighth. Cool. Um, but even better than that, it's like kind of the typical thing, right? Like people have been saying there are like at least some tiny, you know, things that you can appreciate about COVID. And it's like, I went to a baseball stadium where half the people weren't there. So it was like getting like concessions, like a hot dog and a beer was like super easy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It's like room. And there's tons of room around your spaces and everything. It's easier, easier to get like a, a foul ball or whatever, or like a home run that goes in the, in the crowd. <laughs> I guess so. If you if you bum rush it with the other yeah. people. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's about it. The extent of it though, just started to creep back mm-hmm. into society a little bit. Kind of lost like you just kind of forget how to talk to people sometimes. And I think everyone's kind of going through that, but I've been doing a thing where I was like, I don't really like directly talk at people anymore. Cause it's like, I got used to kind of like averting my like breath and stuff. So I'm sitting there like, you know, just talking to someone and I like look the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've seen too many of those, like uh, the 3d visuals where it shows you like all your, you know, <laughs> The spec, the red specs, like coming out of your mouth and coating other people's faces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that like paintball thing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that I, that's an interesting technique. Does do people? Does anyone questioned it? Like, what's what's wrong with you? I usually apologize for it once, like as it's happening. I'm usually kind of like I I say like a few sentences, then I'm like, sorry, I'm used to in, like COVID, like averting my gaze. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like the new eye contact. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So anyways, to kick off this week, I uh, I got an intro here. I, mm-hmm. you know, since we've taken a bit of a break, I wanted to see if there was any new 
literature related news headlines we could talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do have a few here we could take a look at. You might have spoiled First a one. little bit because you sent me one thing and then I was like, I surprised oh, you. I didn't, I didn't use that. I didn't use it, but we oh, okay. talk about it. Okay. Actually, yeah. what was that? Let's talk about it now. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I was like, usually we, we've put like a moratorium on texting about books because it's like, yeah, we're going to get to it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on, I broke. On, I broke. on the podcast. But you texted me, there's like supposedly a Steinbeck novel that's like in the vault of his estate that's him writing about werewolves. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and his and his like estate is like nah it must be pretty bad if they don't want to make any sort of like money off of it but who knows they're, <laughs> they're keeping it locked up i don't know why that they would do like i don't know i think I it's mean, funny post-mortem like estates and families and stuff are really funny right because it's like there's got to be someone there who's like i'm preserving his you know integrity whereas like other people I think maybe even myself included, I would just be like, yeah, let's publish it. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, it tarnishes the legacy of, of the perfection. But mm. I mean, werewolves. Steinbeck werewolves. Right? I mean, it's pretty hot. I, I mean, they, sh they, they should have done it years ago when werewolves were, you know, more of a when, thing. Yeah, when they should have they, read they the, had a, they the Twilight had, craze. Yeah. yeah, they had a moment there. It could have been like a, a movie series or something they should have like dropped it right before twilight new moon and called it yeah. like, and called it like also new moon but it's time like yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i wonder if it has a, i don't think the article had a title for it um i'd have to double check but yeah it's an interesting case of um you know it's under lock and key now maybe maybe the secondary estate like the next generation of the estate will, will want to <laughs> want to release it somebody eventually is going to be like why are we holding this back when we could make x yeah but um <laughs> but yeah that, that was one headline uh that i saw after i put all this together so mm -hmm. i just shot it over to you but the first one from my list here is from salon.com it's titled is there a scientific case for literature a neuroscientist novelist argues yes. I mean, obviously he's going to argue yes, neuroscientist yes. novelist. <laughs> Illogical as it may seem, there may be an evolutionary reason that humans love consuming fiction. Ooh. I can see that. I mean, I read a, like a similar article once that was about kind of, and obviously it got shared around sort of like filmmaking circles just because everyone was patting their own backs. But there have been like similar things about how like human beings value storytellers like no, like yeah. from like from sitting around the fire in caves, like the idea of like basically like storytelling within everything, within advertising, within entertainment, within even like if you work at like a corporate like, you know, advertising agency or something for you know people that sell you know cardboard boxes it's like how do we tell our story yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah that, that's there there's a there's a story to be told everywhere and when i was thinking about it like this this you know case it was like i was thinking i was kind of in the in the vein of like oh you know humans can't fly or do certain things and it's cool to like read about that as a possibility but they're just talking about, you know, reading about someone, even just the like mundane things. It's kind of just filling the gaps in your life of mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, stylizing something or maybe not even stylizing it, just, uh, you know, taking something from your life and, and consuming it in a different way. Right. Rather than just doing it. <laughs> but I've got some paraphrasing from the article here. Cool. Uh, what's the cognitive utility of learning things that aren't true? We're evolved biological beings who need to understand the world to survive, and yet all facts we learn about Hogwarts are literally false. How can any of this information be useful? Mm, I think it's attacking, it's attacking it from the wrong angle. Yeah. Like the facts about Hogwarts are not useful. Like, but like... Knowing that Dumbledore is headmaster is not useful, but knowing Dumbledore like the character and as that develops is, you know, useful. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess you're right. He's kind of more of the minor things, like rote, it's idea, like, a rote like a rote memory kind of yeah, thing. The idea, like yeah, exactly. The idea there good. being that the that the great American, the greatest American novel is like Webster's Dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's jam packed. <laughs> facts yeah that's the only like 100 percenter novel it's true <laughs> encyclopedia maybe but yeah. some of the some of the encyclopedia entries might have like superfluous biographical so-and-so's true but i don't know i mean um it was kind of an interesting article because the author his name is eric howell h-o-e-l uh, so he's a PhD in neuroscience and his debut novel is called The Revelations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm pretty sure it's about a neuroscientist <laughs> who like, uh, I think there's a murder somewhere. So there's a, it's, it seems to be taken from his life, but like made into a murder mystery or something. But he gets pretty deep in the article into like the neuroscience angle that I didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. But it is an interesting concept to think about, you know, absorbing media like like viewing it like junk food, like empty calories of reality TV or like trash, whatever, versus something challenging and, you know, but still not actually, it's just still like a piece of fiction, you know? Yeah. Well, that's like, we've talked about that before about the, um, you know, like going through peaks and valleys of like, <clears throat> I'm going to read this serious like Faulkner or whatever. And then the next book you're like, Stephen King, <laughs> Harry Potter. Even. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just trying to think of it myself. Like I, I know uh, from the period of like 1995 to 2005, I'd probably know like every baseball player that was in the league at the time, <laughs> like, you know, and like what team they're on and what, what other, like, you know, what position they played and stuff like that. And that's just, it's just this random stuff in my head. It's not, it's not doing me any good, but. It's just there. I don't know. It's just there. Hopefully it didn't push anything else out. <laughs> the empathy you would have received from reading the great American novel has been pushed out yeah. by... By baseball facts. John, John Olerud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the ne next one I've got is from Smithsonian Mag. Magazine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused call with Mag. They call it mag. So Sony and mag called literature, or the articles called literature's most curious creations, a new book, which is called the Madman's library, the strangest books, manuscripts, and other literary curiosities from history 
takes readers into collector Edward Brook Hitching's Madman's Library. Mm. So this guy, he's got all of these books that are like bound in, you know, the famous like, oh, it's bound in human skin or whatever. Mm. Uh, but he's also got ones that are like 3D objects with stuff inscribed onto it. And he's kind mm. of, you know, like a skull with, a, with an old prayer. Stone. Yeah, <laughs> I, he's got he's got weird stuff. I don't think he's got anything that's worth like a ton, but he's got he's got an early 1800s journal that is written by the captain of a shipwreck uh, in the south in the South Atlantic. Wow! Nice. And so he had like a writing desk and sheets of newspaper like that had washed up to use, but he didn't have ink. Mm -hmm. So the whole journal was written from penguin blood what <laughs> yeah so like that's that's the sort of stuff he collects at first i was going to ask if it was any connection to the whale ship essex which i talked about you know two episodes ago but i definitely would know <laughs> if yeah. that was in the book that i read <laughs> but that's a similar situation a boat that's been you know wrecked in the south seas yeah yeah but that's mass produced i mean come on you, yours is just regular. Yeah. <laughs> Have um, you ever been like attracted to the idea of like rare books and stuff? Like in New York City, there's like a few bookshops where it was like I would, I would just go in there with no intention of buying anything, but it would, you know, they would have stuff. They would have like first edition pension and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm attracted to the idea of obtaining somehow a rare book without paying for it like yes. like coming across one would be cool. oh i think i don't think like, i'm oh, even man this is you know you i don't even think i'm like cut out for it because even in my fantasies of like receiving some first edition that i appreciate i'm definitely not like the collector that puts it in a glass box i want to receive it so that i can read it yeah like to like you know actually work it out i i actually do think that i have a pretty the, I have one decently rare book and yeah. it's, uh, I have, I have, I've looked it up. It's not a first edition, but it's a very early one. And I have a Tom Clancy signed hunt for red October. Whoa. Okay. But it's, I looked it up. I'm like, I was like trying to find out if it was a first edition and it's not, but it's an early edition, but it's Damn. not first. <laughs> I have a couple first editions, uh, I think I, I have uh, the first edition of, uh, it's not an old book, but uh, Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Latham. Mm. Um, I have a few first, first editions of like, modern books, you know, like yeah, things yeah. that like, like literally came out when <laughs> we were adults. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just hold on to those. I've got a couple autographed ones too. Like uh, I think I got a Dave Barry book that's autographed. Um, but yeah, like what do you, what's the, outside of rare books what's the weirdest kind of abstract book you've seen or heard of like you know well i get, i bet you something that might be probably not owned by that guy but might be mentioned in this article there isn't there like there's a famous um fake encyclopedia i forget what it's called it has like yeah. one of those long overly complex names like an ancient one or no no like all it's not ancient ancient but it's like a guy from I want to say it's definitely something before like the 1900s or like something like that, where there's like this encyclopedia, you know, 
something something like made up like all like words that are like you know weird and it's like a guy made like an entire encyclopedia for a fictional world like an alien world with like okay different, different yeah, I mean, that's like that's like that's like tolkien kind of it is but it's like it's not told from any sort of story perspective it's just like sure uh, you know it's jam-packed with facts just like that guy yeah. in the, from, <laughs> from the first the article that's kind of cool it's just like total pure imagination mm -hmm. yeah uh, so I've got a excerpt from the article here where the interviewer asked, how do you define literary curiosities? And Brooke Hitchings responded with, it's obviously subjective, but the more experienced you are, the more books you see, the more your radar is sensitive to something that pings with its strangeness. Reaching behind me just for the first books that are in my bag, the first one in my hand is something I found on eBay. It's called a Piece of My Mind, Poetry by Charlie Sheen. And it's a self-published collection of just a few copies that the Hollywood actor Sheen made and then gave to a few of his friends. It's just, <laughs> it's just bizarre. And there's some really strange and terrible poetry in it. One, one is called Heretic Proof. And it ends with the lines, Turtle, Android, Pain, Endeavor, Endless, End, P.S. Janonis. No idea what that means, but isn't that such an obvious curiosity? <laughs> that actually reminds me, there was like, I think I maybe even had mentioned it in earlier episodes, but the, I know someone who would kill to have that book. There's like a guy in New York City who runs this show called Celebrity Autobiography, and they have like decently famous comedians, because you know, like you're in New York City, there's a lot of comedians around. And what they do is they have comedians read other celebrity autobiographies on stage. The show that I went to, they were reading ex excerpts from Ricky Martin's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like professional comedians like embellish it in the right way and everything. And it's like really fun. Yeah, nice. So. Yeah, that would be, uh, I mean, he said, it's, it's, it's funny that Sheen like, it said he gave it to a few of his friends and then someone went and someone sold it or donated <laughs> yeah. it to good yeah goodwill donated to goodwill yeah <laughs> i ended up on ebay it's like that episode of Kerber uh, enthusiasm where uh jason alexander has like the tiny book party it's like he, yeah. he wrote a book that's like 10 pages long or whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah nice so uh i got another article here it's from russiabeyond.com mm. And it's an interesting premise. The article, it's just one of those, you know, top five things. But mm -hmm. that premise was the top five most likable Russian characters in Western literature. Ooh. So who comes to mind when I say that? Uh, something from Gagol, like Lost Souls or something. And so you did this made the same mistake as me. I immediately thought of Alyosha uh, Karamazov from the Brothers Karamazov, uh, the youngest one mm -hmm. who works in the monastery. But I realized I had the prompt wrong. It's Russian characters from Western literature. So Russian authors excluded. Ooh, okay. So yeah, yeah. From Western literature. Okay, then it yeah. became a lot harder. Hmm. Because it's hard to kind of, my mind... Uh, just wants to say like, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Dostoevsky or whatever. But I can I can go over a few from from my from the list that they have there. 
Yeah, go into those because it's a, I it's had a hard good. time. That's quite a category. Yeah. So uh, the first one was The Tough Siberian in Michael Strogoff by Jules Verne. Okay. And it was weird how they, the, the article doesn't introduce them by name. It, it like, I don't know if they didn't have name. Some of them didn't have names in the stories and were just known like as the tough Siberian. But um, so Michael Strogoff by Jules Verne, it's about uh, a, someone who was a courier for Tsar Alexander II. Mm. And he has to go all the way from Moscow to Irkutsk to warn the Tsar's brother about an uprising in Siberia. And apparently he's very likable. Likable. <laughs> uh, the second one is the Russian nobleman in 1840s, The Fencing Master by Alexander Dumas. Ooh. These are like famous authors and then like their side works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting book I, that I hadn't you know, heard of. It From 1840, he was the first European writer to depict russia's 1825 decemberist revolt in a work of fiction okay so it was banned by Tsar nicholas the first even though the main character was very likable apparently because <laughs> of his inclusion on the list uh <laughs> the third one is the russian princess in orlando by virginia wolf okay who was uh, a noted Tolstoy and Dostoevsky fan. She kind of mentions them a lot. Uh, and this, the Russian princess here, she does have a name. It's a long name. Princess, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. Princess Marusha Stanislavska Dagmar Natasha Ilyana Romanovich. Nice. That's, a, that's like a really huge patronomic. The middle name is what's called, it's like patronomic, like for lack of a middle name, patronomic is like yeah. who your father was basically. Okay. Like the line. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The fourth one is the Russian thief, Countess Vera Rosikoff, in The Big Four by crime novelist Agatha Christie. Ooh. She's an expert thief who can, quote, put detectives under her spell. Ooh, femme fatale. Yeah. And the last one here is the Russian artist in Tonio Kroger by Thomas Mann. I'm telling you, this list is all, like, the like big hitter authors and then, like, the books that, like, no one knows about. <laughs> I know, I know. It gave me a list of stuff to read. That's, this, that's the real beauty of this list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's uncovering new stuff for me, and... So this is an interesting one, Tonio Kroger. It's a short autobiographical novel that Thomas Mann wrote when he was, uh, brace yourself for some pain right here. He was 25 <laughs> when he wrote this <laughs> apparently very good uh, autobiographical novel. And it depicts an, an, an obviously an aspiring writer stuck between a rock and, you know, rock in a hard place trying to maneuver between art and life, literature and routine love and lust, banality and <laughs> profundity, contemplation and earthly purposiveness. All the normal things. <laughs> the young man's search for truth and harmony finds its way through conversations with his soulmate, a Russian artist, Lizabeta Ivanovna. Ivanovna. Cool. So yeah, I mean, I, I had a hard time as soon as I realized that I 
was like ignoring the prompt. <laughs> I was trying to think of like, you know, cool characters in, you know, because it's hard, like we're, we're looking at it through Western literature. So like a lot of Russian depictions were like, you know, Cold War influence and stuff. And like mm -hmm. James Bond novels is like yeah. Fleming stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe got to dig into this list. Yeah. And be on the lookout for positive Russian depictions. Yeah. Nice. So those are the ones. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So that's all I have for that. But I'm going first this week yes. for the yes. actual. You are first. The, Epis the meat. Episode 71. 71. So I'm just going to read the first sentence of my book. Get your reaction real quick. Mm -hmm. Chapter one, a grateful people. On the 20th of August, 1672, the city of the Hague, always so lively, so neat, and so trim that one might believe every day to be Sunday. You know where he's going. Oh, yeah. I don't. He didn't actually get it from that though. He might have. It's coincidence. He is. He is quite a literary chap. Yeah. Um, it is a famous novelist who I've already mentioned. Oscar Wilde. So it's uh, no very no mentioned like a few minutes ago. Uh, okay. Um, but. So like it, it very well may be from that. We'll see if that's if that's the first mention of every day being Sunday. <laughs> In, because this is an 1850 story by Alexander Dumas. Oh nice. Another one of the, you know, like you said, like the side the side stories out like you know that get overshadowed. So is this novel length or is it a short story? Uh it's it's short novel length. It's decent sized. Novella. Uh, maybe it's in between, I would say. Okay. But, you know, uh, I, I didn't read The Fencing Master, but I know, so we both read The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, mm -hmm. I know, I think you've read The uh, Three Musketeers as well. I've read like part of The Three Musketeers. Yeah. I haven't read the whole thing. But I, I have not. It wasn't like The Count. The Count was like life changing. Yeah. <laughs> I, so this, the, you know, the count was the only one I've read of his. So this, for this week, I finally got to another story. Uh, I mean, I know the I know the Three Musketeers story, like seen like movies and stuff, like Wishbone. The, that's a good Wishbone episode. Uh, but Stranger when I think things. of, yeah, I I haven't I haven't seen that. But well, there's a character named D'Artagnan. Oh, okay. Yeah, that 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 gets mentioned a lot. Like, I feel like there's a lot of characters named D'Artagnan. In, in various things but um yeah you know because i've only read the count you know when i think of dumas i think of like a large intertwined big scale story that mm -hmm. lots of time and space covered lots of characters lots of intrigue uh but for this week i read 1850s the black tulip mm -hmm. uh la, la tulip la tulip noir Ooh. Uh, which you know covers a much smaller scale 
than what I was used to with him. And it takes place in Holland. Like I said, the the Hague. Sure. Yeah, not the not the usual France. So with the uh with everything that was going on this year with GameStop and all that crap, do you remember or you probably heard mention of the Dutch tulip mania of the 1600s. You're, you know about this? I do slightly, right? It was like an, it was some sort of like market, like anomaly, human psychology kind of thing, right? Yeah, it was a bubble. It was the yeah. first bubble, <laughs> you know, of the first so-called bubble of a commodity or an asset being extremely overpriced compared to its intrinsic value. Like, you know, mm -hmm. how much is a flower worth you know, uh, because back then it, they <laughs> like uh, it was skyrocketing mm -hmm. in the in the 1600s and yeah, um, kind of like the tech bubble. More recently, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always Dogecoin alongside Dogecoin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, this was a period when the tulip was. It was when the tulip was new. It, it, it wasn't like something that just kind of happened out of nowhere. The tulip was new. Uh, it was like fashionable and it soared to just ridiculous levels before crashing. Uh, so the when story... When you say the tulip was new, do you mean like, is the tulip an invented flower? Or is it like it came into fashion with like I think it, colors and stuff? I mean, I don't know. There is like, there is some <laughs> was, precedent, to what I'm, it, precedent to what I'm asking because if yeah. you don't know, if you don't know, broccoli as we know it today, like, broccoli florets are invented yeah yeah I, th I think that's what it was like it was um you know some horticulturist combined some stuff yeah because i'll get into it later but like the, it's it's a very involved process to you know from seed to bulb or from you know bulb to actual flower it's a long long trip mm -hmm. for these tulips uh, but this story itself, you know, it centers, it's, it's a love story. It centers, it's a love story between an obsessed tulip grower and the daughter of a jailer. Hmm. You know, of course, being a Dumas piece, like now I can say, you know, now I can say that because I've read two of his books. Uh, <laughs> Expert. <laughs> you know, typical of, typical of Dumas. Uh, there's some intrigue and, you know, jealousy, plotting, stuff like hmm. that. So the main character is Cornelius Van Barrel, Barely, B-A-E-R-L-E, Barrel. Hmm. I'm not sure. He's in it for the love of the game, but there's a big prize of a hundred thousand francs and fame and renown to anyone who can grow the fabled black tulip, which is said to not exist, hmm. because that would be like the most you know expensive one. Uh, so Cornelius, like that's he's all about it. He's like uh, he's be become a hundred percent tulip guy, but his his neighbor is trying to do the same thing. His neighbor Isaac, mm -hmm. but you know for the wrong reasons. He just wants the money and the fame. Uh, yeah. So and he schemes against Cornelius because he's envious. Uh, I won't say how, but before you know it. Boom, life sentence in prison for Cornelius. Damn. <laughs> he, gets, he gets set up. Yeah. I mean, there's a connection to like something that happens earlier in the story of like a separate event, uh, family history. To be and honest, stuff. It's, it, this might be a pattern for Dumas because that's kind of how the, that's how the count kind of starts. Right? I know. He's, I know. It's a setup. 
He's like, I'm bright-eyed youth about to get married. And then he's like, nope, yep, jail yep. forever. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's always it's always jail forever. And you know, I wonder if Dumas knew anyone. Or was he like exiled or something, possibly? I don't, I don't think so. I think he he lived a pretty awesome life, mm -hmm. right? Wasn't he like the man? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's, I think he was like supposedly some sort of like ladies man, but I don't really, I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Yeah. We'll have to dig into that later, different segment, but so he's in life, he's uh, sentenced to life in prison, but then, you know, the jailer is this awful guy, but the jailer's got a daughter named Rosa who I guess like lives on the premise or like has to live basically in the jail because her dad works there but together you know they 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 have a connection over flowers and over other things and together uh they attempt to grow this black tulip within rosa's room you know using cordelius was able to sneak in some like bulbs that he had mm. uh that he i guess i don't know how he had you know some black tulip but whatever imagine it's the like circumstances the... <laughs> of your life imagine the circumstances of a life coming together where a life sentence is like i, I gotta sneak in my bulbs <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know he's obsessed though like that's it that's it so you get a nice like little little uh thing there of like the rose that grew from concrete that sort of thing like the mm -hmm. the tulip that grew in jail <laughs> mm -hmm. uh so like the big quote that you kind of see from this book, if you do any any research on it or read any reviews, is this one. Contempt for flowers is an offense against God. The lovelier the flower, the greater the offense in despising it. The tulip is the loveliest of all flowers. So whoever despised the tulip offends God immeasurably. So it was just straight up. That's, that's the tulip mania, you know? Damn. Nice. Reminds me, there's an Elton John song it's called... Sin. There's an Elton John song called Better Off Dead. And he's and the line is, if the thought of a rose is a thorn in your side, then you're better off dead if you haven't yet died. Oh. <laughs> That's pretty good. Clearly Elton was reading Dumas. <laughs> yeah. That's a clever line right there. <laughs> so I say it's a love story, but it's kind of a love triangle because, you know, Cornelius... He's obsessed, man. He maybe maybe he he loves tulips more than Rosa, even though he denies it. I mean, she thinks so. Is this at times? Uh, okay, keep going. Uh, eighteen fifty. So you're asking if it's before the count? Yeah, I was like wondering, just like I you know, because sometimes sometimes stuff works like that. You know, like uh, he wrote this thing and then it ended, and then he was like, you know, starts up again. I think this is after. After okay, maybe. I'm not sure because he died in 1870. Hmm. This is 1850. I'm not sure. Uh, but one thing I really liked in this book, which I was kind of hinting at earlier, but it's kind of unrecognizably Dumas like is, is when he kind of speaks to the reader and says like, he basically says, Hey, you know, this is, this book is about tulips. Right. But if you actually, if you want me to just like spout horticultural facts uh go read a book about tulips like <laughs> this is <laughs> like i'm i'm not i'm not a scientist or whatever like <laughs> mm -hmm. 
he's like, I'll, I'll give you some information, but I'll, I'll tell you what I know. But, you know, so here's what he says. Here's how he goes about it. It might perhaps be interesting to explain to the gentle reader the beautiful chain of theories which go to prove that the tulip borrows its colors from the elements. Perhaps we should give him pleasure if we were to maintain and establish that nothing is impossible for a florist who avails himself with judgment and discretion and patience of the sun's heat, the clear water, the juices of the earth, and the cool breezes. But this is not a treatise upon tulips in general. It is a story of one particular tulip which we have undertaken to write, and to that we limit ourselves, however alluring the subject which is so closely allied to ours. Hmm. Nice. Some interesting facts about tulips, though, uh, and what maybe gave them their high value. And that is, like I, like I was kind of saying before, it takes about six years for a tulip to flower from a seed. What? It's a six-year process. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, my yeah. God. Those fields of, like, tulips then in I know. or whatever, that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, I often... Yeah, I often think about like just in general, like, okay, so I have two nieces, one nephew, and I'll just be drinking a bottle of wine and be like, this is like 12 times older than my nephew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I know the amount of time that goes into some things. Crazy. But yeah, uh, so the Black Tulip, I mean, it's no surprise that it's pretty good. Uh, like some common themes with with Count of Monte Cristo, like the despair of imprisonment and the strong pulling emotions of love for someone else, uh, mm -hmm. you know, pulling you through an experience, that kind of thing. But obviously, obviously, there are the haters. There always are. Uh, and I chose, I got a one-star review here from user Ar Argyris. Uh, because he did a good job of summarizing the end of the book for me. Uh, Great. So I'm going to give some spoiler spoiler warning here. It's an old book, so it's fine. Here we go. This novel was too conventional and predictable for my taste. The beginning, the only part that I somewhat liked, was quite dramatic and tense, but then it all went all downhill. The characters are one-dimensional and clear-cut good or evil. Only exception to that is the Prince of Orange. At some parts, the dialogue becomes so corny and annoying, like when like when Rosa, mostly a compassionate and kind character, is jealous of the black tulip and forces Cornelius to not mention the flower for some days. I mean, come on, jealous of a flower? The conclusion of the novel is worse than the typical happy ending of the Hollywood movies. The prisoner gets released, he marries the girl, the bad guy drops dead, and the jailer, Rose's father, who is overly hostile towards Cornelius throughout the book, just makes a U-turn and sympathizes with his son-in-law. Also, in a more humorous note, we never learn what happened to the third tulip bulb. Even if you are a botanist or like tulips, I don't think you'd like this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even notice that like there were three bulbs and... He, he just didn't mention the third one. So it could have just yeah. been two. It could maybe have been more when, dramatic by being two. Maybe when Dumas was like, <laughs> you know, like he's sitting there in front of the, you know, planning out the writing and everything. And it's like, yeah, it's going to be like in these three parts. And then he was just like, ah, I'm done. It's like, yeah, it's, it's two parts and forget that other thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stuff like that. Like, um, this is like such a stupid connection, but it still like goes with my point. Do you remember the third Austin Powers movie with Beyonce? The gold, gold member, yeah. Gold member. There's a scene at the beginning of that movie 
where she says like Beyonce is like I stole this microfilm from like gold member like oh like you know something could be on it and he's like that's amazing and then it's just never mentioned again (laughs) (laughs) I don't expect any less yeah there's lots of little stuff like that where it's like you know if you if you are paying attention like that (laughs) one user maybe maybe he wrote the numbers yeah two tulip bulbs he wrote the numbers one and three on the two tulip bulbs and they assumed that he had a second one i guess so (laughs) really i regret saying that immediately is stupid it's like (laughs) i don't know i'm done (laughs) you're done shitty book report completed i'm done yeah (laughs) the name of the the podcast is our out for every single thing that we do um yeah Nice. Yeah, that sounds cool. I mean, it's interesting how those ideas are flowing through his head, like year after year. Yeah. Um, and lots of artists are like that. Uh, some people say the best filmmakers make the same film over and over. Um, sure. Okay, so your book was 1850. Yeah. And my book was 1851. So... Oh. My- my book modern. is modern. <laughs> One year after yours, 48 years before Hitchcock was born, just to okay. kind, of, kind of set the scene. And actually, my book, uh, I'm going to give you a clue that will make you guess it immediately. But my okay. book, um, I was really hoping two episodes ago to have done a double theme, but I read a whale of a book. <laughs> okay. So what do you think that that book is, Mark? You read Moby Dick, maybe? I read Moby Dick. Cool. Um, so yeah, so but two I'll... weeks ago, I I covered um, In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. I was really hoping for the episode right after that to be like, and then I read Moby Dick. Like, it's a theme. It's a nautical theme. But Moby Dick, alas, uh, was too, too large for me <laughs> to finish within that time. It is... Yeah. Uh, you know, 577 pages. Yeah. Um, but that is to say that even while recording this podcast and having, you know, read that Murakami story and whatever, blah, blah, in between now and then, I read Moby Dick. Nice. It's been a long um, time coming. I'm jealous. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a stamp of approval within itself. Like, I read a 600-page book in the last, like, you know, I think probably like a month, uh, probably. Yeah, um, a little bit over a month, maybe. So that's the step. Like, first of all, I'll just go into saying it. That, like, yeah, Moby Dick is awesome. It's kind of like that same thing um, with Madame Bovary, where it's like, oh, I'm supposed to read this book, and then you read it, and you're like, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it des- it deserves everything. Yeah, it kind of does deserve everything. Although it is interesting, I was re- like in research for the podcast, like it was not popular even like up until his death. Yep, like it was not a big deal, and Melville was not a big deal um until after his death when there was like some sort of like movement in i think like one of the you know fancy schmancy universities like yale or princeton or something where a guy started lecturing about his books and then he kind of like revived him or whatever um i have a weird memory memory to bring up right now it just came to me in the basement of your house in high school you you had like a lamp that had like a uh fisherman guy on it that was like Ishmael. Yeah, did. did you call it Ishmael? 
I don't know if I called Something it Ishmael, like that. but I do. I, you just remember it made me remember that <laughs> land for the first time in about 15 years. So good on you. It's, yes, it's the, like the, Gor- the Gordon's Fisherman guy. Yes, the famous first line of, uh, of Moby Dick. And even on the Wikipedia page, it's like one of the most famous first lines in all of history is, uh, call me Ishmael. That's the first sentence. I knew that you, I was either going to make my whale of a book joke or I was going to tell, or I was going to read, uh, do a first last. <laughs> <laughs> and then you would have gotten it immediately, I would think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, going into it, obviously, do, like, what do you like? Have you heard kind of like the main criticism of Moby Dick? Uh, yeah, the thing I hear, the thing I've heard the most is like, oh, there's too many whale facts in it. It's just like right. a straight up book about whale facts. Like, right. I don't exactly. care. It's almost, yeah. it's almost, it's really funny that you were talking about Dumas and the tulip story when he was like saying, like, hey, I'm not going to tell you everything about tulips. <laughs> because that made me think like you know what melville with moby dick did the complete opposite of that he yeah, was he's like, like fuck that yeah he was like you're gonna know gonna, everything there's a good novel in here with really good writing and then he was and then it's a hundred percent true that like pretty much every other chapter or sometimes several chapters in a row is like let's talk about whale skeletons <laughs> what was it compelling for you or was it interesting it was interesting, but I, I 100% like I can get on board with people who are like, I'm not reading this. The thing that's funny is that I would almost be tempted to be like, you know, you could go through Moby Dick dipping into the factual chapters when you want to. And then other ones, because you can tell pretty much right away when a chapter starts, like if he starts talking about some of the crew members, like there's one called Stubbs or another one, um, you know, obviously Ahab, Captain Ahab or Queequeg, which is like one of the natives with them, then you know that it's going to be like a, like the novel part of it. But I will say that during the factual parts, when I was pushing through being like, why am I reading this book about whales? There were definitely some like hilarious gems in the middle of, of some of those factual chapters that I, yeah. I can kind of glaze, like, glaze over with you, but there was like really good stuff in he's a good writer no matter what he's writing so even if some of it is like and the other thing that's funny too is that you know now like this book published in 1851 you know that like most of these quote-unquote whale facts are like disproven <laughs> like <laughs> like it's definitely like a lot of it is like conjecture in him like referencing like sometimes he directly references like other like like this guy wrote a book about whales or whatever and it's like yeah, that, and, and also what's going on in Moby Dick, which I think is kind of funny, is you know how in Rabelais, like the giants like change size like all the time. Yeah, it's yeah, not consistent it, at all. And Moby Dick, it's like not consistent like at all. He's like, it was this, it was that, and then it's like, and you know, and then he was as big as the ship, and then as small as the as small as a boat, and like all this like other like crazy like like size <laughs> stuff, which is pretty good. But what I will say about those like chapters where. Um, you know, oh, like it's not the greatest thing because it's like a factual thing. Is that actually one of my f- favorite chapters? Is a factual one, um, and it was really interesting. There's this part um, that I want to read from that is really interesting. Like basically, there's a chapter where he talks about mastheads. You know, like the like basically like the person the front of the ship. Yeah. No, no, the masthead is Wait, like is the oh pole. sorry the big pole gotcha. like in, yeah, in the yeah. middle and you're sitting up there like looking for whales and stuff like that like you're kind of like the lookout or whatever in the crow's nest um 
Well, first of all, also, this is one of my favorite chapters because you know that I love, um, well, yeah, I mean, there were some literary references throughout Moby Dick that I was like absolutely fascinated with. For instance, in the beginning, the whole book starts out with like him doing like a series of extracts about whales. So obviously like the first one is like Jonah in the whale and like from the Bible. And then there's one of them from Rabelais. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sick. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, uh, he, you know, he has a quote from Rabelais, but then also in this chapter about mastheads, he talks about Simeon Stylites, that saint that I love who sat on top of a column for like four oh. years. <laughs> so I, I would have like, never remembered that name. I was like, I, oh I my God, exactly like, what you're yeah, talking about. yeah, Stylites is like a Christian or like a saint or whatever in, in some one of the faiths where he sat on top of a column for like 40 years, like like sacrificing himself to God, basically. So he likens the masthead to that and like all these other things, but there's just like really good paragraphs of him. Um, let, I'm going to give you, I'm going to read about one, maybe it's like half of a page, but I will... Um, I'll read it just to give you a sense of how good of a writer he is, even if he's just the, like this chapter about mastheads. Um, let me see where I should start. Da, 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 da. There you stand, lost in the infinite series of the sea, with nothing ruffled but the waves. The trance ship indolently rolls, the drowsy trade winds blow, everything resolves you into languor. For the most part, in this tropic whaling life, a sublime uneventfulness invests you. You hear no news, read no gazettes. Extras with startling accounts of commonplaces never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear no domestic afflictions, bankrupt securities, fall of stocks, and you're never troubled with the thought of what you shall have for dinner for all your meals for three years and more are snugly sewed in casks and your bill of fare is immutable. So like he's talking about like just being on top of the masthead and how like peaceful it is up there and like basically like when you're up there the world is yours. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really good and he does like a lot of like really interesting kind of shifts in um, tone. Like for instance, right after that masthead chapter, it goes into a chapter where he sometimes writes it like in stage direction. Like he switches from novel slash book about whales to being like enter Ahab. <laughs> what? Yeah, okay. uh, I don't yeah. like Ulysses that, that like or whatever. Well, that's the thing. Like going through this, which I thought was really interesting, and and another point that I want to bring up a specific section that I wanted to bring up is that there. This is in some ways like definitely like a maximalist like kind of thing, like unappreciated in its own time. It's apparently a quote that Faulkner says he wishes that he wrote Moby Dick. Um, and then there was like another thing in the beginning of the book where I was like, what? Like, this is so crazy because so he meets this native when he's back on land. And also, it's really fun to read this because we're so close to Massachusetts and stuff like, you know, Massachusetts. Have you been to Nantucket? Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. like he's, he's like launching from Nantucket and like all this like thing. And it's really like, you know, it feels kind of like homey, especially if you're from there. So yeah. the beginning of the book is he's saying he's like, I'm going to try to get on a whaling vessel, but I'm just Ishmael, like whatever. Ishmael isn't too developed as a character. He's more like a kind of like narrator. He doesn't have many actions. He's just like telling the story kind of. Yeah. Um, but the, like I, immediately when I like knew that I was going to read the whole book was like the beginning is he's in Nantucket. And he's staying at an inn and he doesn't, he's looking for a ship and he doesn't know like who's leaving or what's happening or whatever. So he goes into this inn 
and the uh, the innkeeper is like, there's no room, but we we will like you can pay for sleeping like in a double bed, like basically like you're gonna share a bed with someone. And he's like, I'm not that into it, but I guess I'll do it. Like apparently this guy like isn't even in the room that often, so he pays the fee and then he goes to bed. And then who he shares his bed with is this quote unquote cannibal, but basically it's just like, that's like a racist way of saying like a native. And, um, you know, you can imagine that on these whaling ships, it was probably like pretty common. Like they would pick up people like in the islands, not necessarily even as slaves, at least the way that he portrays it in Moby Dick, like Lee Cake on the ship, like gets uh, like a salary and everything. Like he gets like a part of whatever the like profits are going to be when they sign the contract. But he's like, he basically like is terrified because this guy like comes into the room and he's like what it's like one of the it's like one of the, like the natives like what i like he was like he's basically ready to go to the innkeeper and be like fuck this and then it turns into like a hilarious scene like you know like in a sitcom where like two friends like fall asleep on each other and it's like that's like that was really cute or you know what even like if you've seen the episode of friends where Joey and Ross discover that when they take naps together, it's the best sleep they've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically that, but with Queequeg and Ishmael, where he's like, he like basically like wakes up and he's like, I was in Queequeg's arms and it felt so good. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, at first I was terrified of him, but now I think he's the man. Yeah. And Queequeg actually is the man. He like, when they sign up to the ship and everything, he's uh, what's known as a harpooner, which is like the man at the front of the boat who like, tosses the harpoons into the whales yeah. and Queequeg's like a super badass one like he's like super accurate and he like saves multiple people's lives on the ship by like all these like crazy stunts and stuff like that and speaking of crazy stunts another thing that's really good about Melville with Moby Dick is that in the sense that you remember what I was telling you about in the heart of the sea by Nathaniel Philbrick that's like a sort of like historical document of what happened to the whale ship Essex which this the story of the whale ship Essex is actually the inspiration for the end of Moby Dick. Uh, I won't give any more spoilers than that. That's a pretty huge spoiler. Um, <laughs> but like inspired by the same thing, but in the same way that like Nathaniel Philbrick is trying to lay out the facts for you and it's very fascinating, Melville is really good. Like when they lower the boats to go for a whale, I never stopped in the middle of that. Like it was like, no way am I putting this book down. Like he's really good at, he has like these like, um, like action scenes and stuff like that. Like there's like uh, one of the first or the second mate is Stubbs. It's like this guy who, or, and another one is named Starbuck. And Stubbs like always smokes a pipe, like no matter what, even if they're like pursuing a whale in high winds, yeah. <laughs> he's got his pipe like going. And there's these really good scenes because Stubbs and Starbuck, the way that they like push on their crews is to just like shout like bullshit at them, you know? Like, come on, like you can do it, like come on, like blah blah blah. And there's really like they're always like yelling and screaming in pursuit of the whale, and it's really good. Um, so the action scenes are really good. Um, I'm jumping all over the place, but I was saying in the beginning. Uh, where I really like was kind of grasped onto this idea that in 1851, you know, Melville was ahead of his time with this maximalist novel and stuff like that, is that I did felt feel like there was like an element of hysterical realism, like that criticism um, that we like learned at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Because in what way? 
Well, there was this thing, there was this scene and it was really cool. He, before they launched on the Pequod, which is the name of the boat, before they launch, he's like, uh, he goes to church. Ismael is like, all the seamen like go to church, like before going off or whatever, you know, say your prayers, blah, blah, blah. And he's in this awesome church where he's like, you know, some of the like rafters were made of whale bones and like, you know, and like all this like crazy stuff. And then he's like the priest uh, from the pulpit was like the pulpit is like the uh, the head of a ship, you know, like the front part of a ship is like is like what the pulpit is and stuff. And I was like, what? Like there, there's like this is like insane. Like it's so stupid. And then I literally I literally wrote in my notes for the exit for the episode, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke a hysterical realism because that church is fucking real. <laughs> and it's in Massachusetts still. Really? Yeah. It, no, seriously. Yeah, what's there's, it called? There is gotta, a, there's a church. Go to Wikipedia and type in Siemens Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L. And th- they have a plaque on the front of their thing that's like, yep, this is like the Siemens Bethel from Moby Dick, like the chapel from Moby Dick. And if you look at uh, the images, it's like literally the priest like gives his sermon from the like bow of a boat. That's oh, I see car- it. Yeah. It's carved into a wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, when I was reading it, I was like, this is some wild shit. Like he like definitely has a crazy imagination. And then I looked it up and it was like, nope, that's totally true. <laughs> so, cool. you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Um, another yeah. really cool detail that got me super pumped about, um, you know, being close to, uh, you know, Massachusetts and having spent time in, like, I spent a minor amount of time in Nantucket. Uh, this is going to fascinate you. Tallinn County is mentioned twice. Oh. Yep. So there's a character on the Pequod who is um, an African-American gentleman, although he's not referenced as that in the book. And uh, he is from Tallinn County. And it's like, and it's hilarious. It's actually, he's like the newbie of the ship. And they're like, it's this guy from like Tallinn or whatever. And he's not like hardcore experienced enough for, I think he's in Starbucks boat. Like when they cast the boats off the ship, he's like in Starbucks thing. And he was like, this guy is like such a newbie. And one time he falls off the boat and uh and they're like okay and and someone like i think queequeg or someone like risked their lives saving him because you know like when they're in the pursuit of whales there's like all these chains in the water and ropes and like crazy shit and there's like yeah, whales dangerous. yeah it's super dangerous so he falls in and then they like risk i think they even maybe lose a whale because they like rescue this guy from tolland <laughs> and then <laughs> and then it happens the second time and starbuck is like nah fuck that and he leaves <laughs> oh my god <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't completely die it's like he's like i t- like starbuck later is like i was totally gonna come back for you but it's like no you left him and then like the other boat like came around and oh, oh god because <laughs> he's like he's too green that guy from Holland. yeah the 860 yeah, yeah the 860 is like can't take it um yep. i love that obviously every time that my eyes were lighting up for that but yeah i mean <laughs> overall great book definitely deserves its reputation really crazy that it wasn't you know received in its own time because it definitely does have those kind of like that like modern feel i will say too even some of the factual chapters were intense with like gory disgusting details like in the same way that i was saying in the heart of the sea by nathaniel philbrick has some gory stuff where it's like wow it's so crazy they would like go up to the whales and stab them to death and there was like blood and everything but there were literally parts in moby dick where i was like this is fucked up. Like I, like my stomach didn't feel well because he, he, cause he goes into like extreme detail. Like basically 
and I hope you're ready for this. But basically, yeah, it's it. like 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 when they kill a whale and like harpoon it and stuff, then they like the corpse is like strapped to the side of the main ship because they don't like bring it completely on board, right? Like they like yeah. strap it, and it's like it's like sitting there overnight with like a huge flock of seagulls like eating it apart, and they were like, and then like sharks come and like they have to like like smack the sharks off because it's like <laughs> trying to like eat it, and it's like so like he like oh it's like these disgusting descriptions of the. Um, the tools that they use and then like i'm never going to eat an orange the same way again he's like basically uh -oh. basically he's like they put a hook in and then like they like like they like turn this crazy crank and he was like basically think of it as like when you take an orange skin off of an orange he was like that's like the blubber being peeled off of a whale and i was like oh this is like <laughs> fucking disgusting <laughs> like it was like so brutal and hardcore and there's other parts like that too where it's like and then you know they chop off its head and like boil like what's inside like in the bottom deck and stuff like that it's like yeah. so fucked up uh it, it was such an important industry though that, well yeah uh, that's the other thing that was happening really, a lot it's like what like you know the humans even to this day go to very extreme lengths for their oil yeah. uh, and this is you know that this time was no different um so yeah it was awesome historical perspective to learn from i'm gonna wrap up pretty soon because i feel like we're talking about whales enough on this podcast <laughs> um but overall awesome i thought it was great i definitely think it's one of those things just like we've talked about with pension where perhaps you have to enjoy the act of reading to like get through some of like those like long chapters about whale skeletons and whale blubber and the different tools on a whale boat um but it yeah, always you got to you got to like jog for a little bit you know <laughs> yeah and it but it always like does long have... distance Every single one of those chapters really does have something interesting, like that masthead one, where it's like, wow, like what he's describing is like really interesting and cool. Um, yeah. I got a one-star review from Goodreads user. Oh, Edward. there's got to be so many. There's so many. There's so many. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people get forced to read this in high school or something, which I think we've talked about that before too, where it's like, you should be like forced to read this when you're like 17 or something. It's just yeah. not. Also, it's, that's a, like, it's a pretty long book for... I think people, some people have to read it in either college or whatever, but even college, I don't even know if you're like fully ready for, yeah, for whatever, but Emily's one star review. It was one of the most brutal, which is why I liked it. Um, <laughs> it was one of the most brutal. So yeah, it's good. Emily says, I do not understand why this book is considered an American classic unless it was so designated by an enemy of the U S who wants to make <laughs> us look foolish. <laughs> <laughs> Melville is long-winded, wordy, and pedantic. If he didn't try to overwhelm the reader with every piece of trivia he could find about whales, it might have been slightly better. Oh, that was pretty brutal. Brutal. So yeah, um, Moby Dick, I'm really happy that I've read it. It was pretty awesome. So um, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. Does your mom still have that lamp? No, definitely not. <laughs> well, you was, guys got rid of it? I think that was sacrificed in a move. Unless oh, it cool, unless man. it somehow got back to my grandpa's house, which I will check when I'm there in, <laughs> in a few months. Yeah, I got to see a picture of that again. It's... Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, everyone, thanks for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Uh, you can find us whenever we feel like making this podcast and whenever we can make the technology work to do it. Uh, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, Stitcher, Twitter, at SBR on the podcast. And you can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.